Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition Food Studies and Public Health at New York University and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit cane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Chef Story. I'm your guest host, Eric Mernigan, president of the International Culinary Center. Today we're broadcasting from ICC in Soho, New York City. My guest today is Douglas Keene, a James Beard award-winning chef, winner of Top Chef Masters Season 5, chef owner of Healdsburg Bar and Grill, and partner in the just-opened Two Birds, One Stone, located in the Fremark Abbey Winery in St. Helena. Douglas was also the chef owner of the award-winning Michelin two-star Cyrus in Sonoma County. Welcome, Douglas. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Always good to be in Manhattan. Good. I'd like to learn uh, about your current and future projects, but first I'd like to learn a little bit more about your background and what led you to your career as a chef. How does a, a kid from Dearborn, Michigan become a celebrated Sonoma County, California chef? <laughs> um... The, the the basis of it is a parents that had a great work ethic instilled it in me, and then I was given a palate as, at, a, at a young age. I, I had a gift of a palate; I could taste things. So, take that back, and I, I loved working on like digging ditches and mowing grass and doing things that had immediate gratification. And so, and then I watched my mom cook, and she was a great cook. And then I had a really great mentor a guy by the name of Stan Bromley, who was in the hotel business, and he was on the food and beverage side, and so I kind of idolized him. So all those kind of together, it led me to the food direction. I really just, I was drawn to food, I guess. And then in high school, I had um, a Catholic school, and I cooked uh, with Sister Josephina in Foods 1 and 2 at Dearborn Divine Child. And it kind of, I did it just to get a date to begin with, like to get a prom date, which worked, but I, I, I loved it. I loved cooking the brownies on, on Fridays for the missions and stuff like that, so it, it, felt, it felt natural. All right. 
I'm intrigued by the the prom date. Now, was <laughs> this to you wanted to learn how to cook to cook her a, a meal to be able to no. woo her into becoming a date? No, I just knew there was a lot of cute girls in the cooking class. Ah, okay. so I decided okay, to smart. get in there. Yeah, yeah. and it worked. It, it did work. I All did. Right. Yeah. Were you guys cooking anything interesting in that class, or was this like no. kind of home ex stuff? It, yeah, it was exact. It was very. It was like an advanced home ex, is what it was. I was surprised they had it, but they had a whole setup. There was like six different stations, but it was more like baking and, and meal planning and shopping type of stuff, but it, it was, we cooked. It was neat. So no doubt that you're successful because I think people in this industry who are very successful are, are motivated to achieve a goal. And so I, I guess your initial goal was not cooking, but, uh, but you date. figured out a way as a, <laughs> as a young man to, to do something that other guys hadn't thought about, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was creative that way. That's pretty fantastic. <laughs> All right. So you graduated from high school. Yep. And you went to Cornell? I did. Yeah. I took some, again, my mentor, I told him I wanted to cook and he said, well, I think you should try hotel school. And so I um, got accepted at Cornell, and I went there, and um, I almost left two years into it to go to cooking school. Cause I, I, while I was, they actually they don't cook as much anymore now up there. They do have a cooking lab, but it's kind of become more of a business school. But uh, I cooked a lot there. I, I took extra credits and independent studies, and, and then I was always in the kitchen. So about two years into it, I said, I think I'm going to leave and, and go to culinary school. And my the chefs up there said, don't leave. You can go to culinary school after if you want. Just stay here, finish your degree. It'll be the best thing you ever did. And so I did. And what it was, it was a smart thing. And then um, when I graduated, the, they, I said, listen, I think I'm going to go to culinary school. They said, well, why don't you, you've, you've cooked quite a bit. Why don't you just go down to New York City and get the bejesus beat out of you? And I said, okay. Okay. So I moved down here, and, and I just came down and got pushed and to, to the limit. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no business getting hired in any restaurant, but I did. So were you cooking in restaurants in Ithaca when you were in school? Yeah, I cooked at the – so I did a lot of pastry work at the Statler Hotel. Um, I cooked at a bar called Johnny's Bar and Grill. It was my first cooking job, just greasy burgers and steamed mussels and french fries. And yeah, perfect for food. a college kid, yeah, right? Yeah, chicken wings, exactly. Um, it was a fun place. Yeah, so I, I cooked all over there, yeah. And then every summer I would go cook at a different externship. Went out to San Francisco for a summer, stayed in Detroit for a summer. Went to Washington, D.C. for a little bit, too. Okay. I'm always intrigued, and I think this. Um, I think you did this. I'm intrigued by people who think about somewhere that they, they want to eat, and they eat there, and then they decide that, okay, this is the place I need to work. Yeah. It was um, – so I, I, would, I was working at the Four Seasons in Manhattan, um, the one that's going to close in a couple months or probably in a month actually. And I would eat all around New York. I just saved my money in 888 every Sunday that, we could, that I could get off. And um, I remember reading the review by Ruth Reichel about um, – Les uh-huh. and it just blew my mind the way she wrote about it and I said I have to go eat here and so I saved up and went to dinner there and uh, I, I think it was the black bass or tamarind sauce or the uh, kefir lime sauce I can't remember which exact dish but I literally ate it and I stopped and I said I should either work for this guy or I should quit cooking because I want to learn how this guy does this. It was just, it, my mouth danced like it had never danced before. So I, I said, I'm going to work for this guy. So I kind of hounded him a little bit. Um, Did I, you make a connection that night? He came out to the table. I was eating with another chef at the time. That, that, that he, so he came out to the table and said hi. I think I stood up and clapped for him. It was probably embarrassing for everyone. I was, I was just in awe of them. I, I, I really didn't know him as a, as a celebrity at all. I, I literally just, it was just the, how good and how technical the food was just blew my mind. And the acid, the balance of acid and salt and sweet wheat and texture is just I just I just knew it was something that I wanted to learn um, it was a very motivating meal so yeah I, I kind of made a connection but no 
I staged later. I got a stage there, and then there, there's no jobs to be had. Um, and uh, I finally got lucky. Is um, lucky? It was interesting, but I was back, and I had moved back to Detroit for a year to take care of my father while I was while I was while I was passing away. And uh, after he passed away, my mentor, I said, I really want to get. I want. I wasn't done with New York City. I wanted to work at a four star restaurant at the best. I said, I really want to work at Les Benas. And Stan is uh, all uber connected. Somehow he got. He was. Um, I think he got my resume to the GM, who got it to Chef Coons. And okay. next thing I know, I get this message on my phone at home um, and saying, uh, "We'd like to, we'd, we'd like to interview you. We'd like to, you know, but you're you're in Detroit." And I was like, "I'll be there tomorrow." Right. So I packed up, went out, and he hired me. That's that's great. So tell me about Stanley. How did you two connect? And- so uh, 1976, my uncle was um, in charge of Ford Motor Company's land development. Ford Motor Company was pretty big in Dearborn. And they had, and so he did everything that they owned land-wise. He would build for them. And he was building a Hyatt Regency, which was pretty big for the town at the time because there was really very little hotels there. And he had hired this guy, Stan Brownlee, to be the first GM. His temporary offices were in the same office that my uncle and my father had their offices in. My dad was an attorney. And my mom actually had her uh, her business there, too. So Stan and my dad and my mom and his wife, Judy, became best friends. And so I bonded with Stan at a very young age. I was five at the time. Okay. And so – and I just – he and I connected somehow. And so he was almost like an uncle, and he happened to be in the business, and that's kind of where it went. Right? Exactly, yeah. And he and he was a legend in the business. He's if you ask anyone about him in the hotel business, he's considered one of the best ever. To, and he never wanted to move past where he was because he always wanted to be connected to a property because he he was good at making sure the coffee was hot and the the butter was soft. And you know he likes taking care of people. He's good at it. Deca- okay. detail freak. I also grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Champaign, Illinois. Oh, right on. And so I think we can agree that um, that the produce and you know things there, you know, your your fresh summer tomatoes were pretty amazing. Yeah. But there wasn't a whole lot of creativity or even exposure to interesting produce. Um, my mom was also a really good cook, and yeah. I wound up in this industry. So I guess there's. Um, Maybe there's something to how good those tomatoes really are, and they, they stick I agree. with us. Huh? Yeah, and it's also that short season, I think, of the growing season there, and you're so appreciative. But I remember tomatoes, peaches, blueberries, um, and beans, like fresh green beans. I remember those always being great. But, yeah, other than that, it's, it's, it's slim pickings, you know. But I also remember it, I was a sophomore or a junior in Cornell, and I hated fish. I, because every piece of fish I'd ever had was uh, in Detroit. It was either lake fish or stuff that had been flown in and you know, wasn't treated right. And I came down to Manhattan for a class. Um, uh, it was one of my restaurant classes. It's, it must have been senior year. And uh, we ate at Lutes. And Andre Soltner was still cooking there. And he cooked a black sea bass dish with, like, a uh, bear blanc that just absolutely blew my mind. And I was like, oh, my God, this is how fish is supposed to taste. And then I went that day to the Four Seasons, and we had dinner there, and they did a monkfish. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm hooked. And from, for, ever since then, I've been just addicted to cooking fish and seafood. I just It's my favorite thing to cook, I think, because of that. Yeah, when it's done right, it's, it's really good. It's right? magical, yeah. My yeah. Favorite, um, favorite quote of Andre's, he's a dean here, as, as you probably know. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of, um, it took me a thousand attempts to roast a chicken properly. 
Um, so, you know, cook a thousand chickens and you finally you get it right. Absolutely. So I think there's something to that with the fish, too. Yeah, right? I agree. And fish is so technical. Like, if you go just a little bit over or a little bit under, it's just not right. You, each piece of fish, you kind of have to be right on top of, I think. Meat, you get to rest and cheat a little bit. You know, you can feel it. It's better if it rests. But fish, you got you to you kind of nail it. Okay. So then you worked with Gray Coons. How yeah. long did you work at, with worked with uh, Chef Coons for about a year. Yeah, it was a year. Um, and it was brutal. I mean, it was a hard kitchen. I uh, and I was also going through a time where I just lost my father, so and I was very close with him. So, and I moved back to New York just immediately, and so I, you know, it was a rough year. I, I many times I felt about leaving, but um, it was an inspiring kitchen because everyone in that kitchen was so good. Everyone was a chef already. They'd already run restaurants, most of them, or been very high up, and everyone came back to learn from this guy. Mm-hmm. And just the, the the you walk in and the cleanliness and the order and the perfection. I remember the first time I staged there, I came over with um, <laughs> with my tongs in my back pocket, and uh, I walked in, and um, Stuart Woodman uh, was working there, and he's like, dude, get those out of your pocket. I had no idea what he was talking about. Like, I know Stuart. I, I used to work for Stuart. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Zoe here in the city on Prince Street. Stuart oh, was so there funny. for a short time. And now he's in, uh, like, Minneapolis, yeah, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, and but it was funny, cause, yeah. And he, I was like, oh, I think I threw him in the trash. I'm like, I gotta get rid of these things, man. Uh, but I didn't know what it, I didn't know. I didn't get it. That was how far, you know, like how more refined this was than where I was. And then, just everything was wrapped perfectly. Everything was cut perfectly. And it wasn't that I hadn't seen really good food. I just hadn't seen it performed at that level. And it was just like, ah, this is so much fun to try to strive for that. And so. Um, I put, I put in as much time as I could that I could take. I was at that point. I was kind of missing family too. So at the end of the year, it was like I was so sick of snow. I was just like, okay, I'm out of here. My brother and I had made a pact to move back to California, or to actually move to California okay. together. So that's when I decided, all right, I'm I'm out of here. But it was it was the it was it was my finishing school at Lesmanos. And that's when you hooked up with Tracy Desjardins. Yeah, I moved out to the West Coast, um, and I staged around a little bit. I um, I worked actually on Jacques Pepin's cooking show for a little while and at the same time I was kind of trying to find the right kitchen so I had staged a few places and I honestly was um, unimpressed I, I had some sort of ego problem too coming from like the best restaurant in New York to going to San Francisco and at that time um, I'll probably get in trouble for this but the food in San Francisco was good you could go out and get really good meals but it was very similar Everything, everyone was doing like crispy chicken with finger and potatoes and braised greens and you'd be but no one was pushing the envelope in my opinion it was kind of all from the Alice Waters ethos and it was like everyone was afraid to kind of branch out like they had this amazing produce but you shouldn't do anything but salt the the tomato you know and so simple yeah just right but simple but not a whole lot of creativity exactly no one pushing the envelope no one manipulating things and and that might I guess that's part of the California way but um, coming from this kitchen in New York at Las Panas that was at such a high level of just creativity and execution to that i had a hard time in san francisco at first like finding the right place and above all the cleanliness at les Benas was so amazing every kitchen i walked into i was disgusted with in san francisco until i got into tracy's kitchen at jardinaire and i i knew a friend of mine rebecca chapa was the sommelier there we'd gone to cornell together and so she got me a, the job or the the stage and I walked, I showed up with a suit, and uh, I, think, I think Tracy was like, are you kidding me? Who is this guy? That's just not her style at all. You know, I think she was kind of like wrote me off right off the bat. But um, 
I, uh, I, I went in, I worked, put my head down, just worked for the day, and I watched, and people were sleeping, sweeping the floor. Things were cooked, element new. The sauces had acid to them, and I'm like, and they were doing a decent amount of volume, you know, more than we did. Or, no, I'm probably about the same we did at Les Miles, but it was different because there was a theater rush. Um, but I remember saying, I'd like to work here, you know? And so, uh, and I was a relatively good line cook. Like I, I was, I liked repeating things. And so she, I, I think I impressed Tracy that night. So she offered me a job. There wasn't a job to be had, but then all of a sudden there was a job to be had, yep. you know, after. Yep. And, and I'm like, yeah, I'd, li- I'd like to do this. Um, uh, how about it, we just do a couple of weeks to make sure it's the right fit? And uh, she said, sure, that's great. So I started working there. I was still taping Jacques Pepin's show. And um, some guys offered me a job to open up this other restaurant. And uh, I think it was called MC Squared. And, and I was looking to move up. I was actually looking to get a, like a sous chef title at that point sure, in time yeah, for my career. Course. And so they had offered me that position. So I went back to Trace. I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to stay. I said, I, I've got this sous chef position, and I think I want to do this. It's a new restaurant. And she's like, well, she goes, yeah, you're not going to do that. <laughs> she goes, you're going to stay here. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what? And she goes, you're going to stay here. She goes, you know, uh, she, her chef at the time or running the kitchen was Richard Reddington. And she said, uh, Richard, he's gonna, he'll, he'll be here for a year. That was our commitment. He's going to leave. She goes, you can move up at that point in time. She goes, but, and you're not going to go to this other place. She goes, I don't even know these people. She goes, you need to be here. I'm like, well, let me think about it. And I said, I went home. I thought about it. I came back, and I was like, I think I'm going to go take the other job. And she's like, no, you're not. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. I said, if Tracy Desjardins is telling me I'm not going to do it, I'm going to listen to her. So she, I, she pulled the Jedi mind trick. She on totally you, right? did. Yeah, she just did. And um, I also liked how she treated everyone there. Um, there you know, Les Panos was not necessarily the most um, pleasant kitchen to be in. You know, it was it was a great learning experience, but it was also as much as I loved Chef Coons' food, the, the atmosphere in the kitchen it was it was a brutal New York kitchen. You know, it was kind of at times meatheadish, and yep. um, Tracy did not have that at all. And I liked that, and I liked how people were treated, and there was a great family meal. And so I, I kind of felt I felt like this woman kind of I could learn something from her besides just cooking. So I stayed with her, and lo and behold, Richard took off at his his said time. I moved up, and um, you know, Tracy was she was so great for me because she had she has so little ego. She was able to kind of groom me to kind of run the kitchen, and also she didn't have a problem giving me some of the spotlight. So press she would tell press that i was the chef there that i was doing things and she had no problem whatsoever all the while she was kind of watching my back to make sure i didn't screw up too much you know and uh so it was a great she she's probably the most we don't necessarily have the same cooking styles but she taught me a lot about uh produce and how to appreciate it but we um she definitely probably has the most impact on me as a chef in my life just because of how she ran her business treated her people and ran her businesses and um and put out really amazing product at the same time Sounds like she gave you some amazing advice, too. And, yeah, uh, stay. It's, it's Don't a good leave. thing that you stayed. I mean, who knows what would have happened if you would have gone to MC Squared or whatever. But I, think I think they closed I think you made six months later. I think you made the right. Well, they might not have if you were there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I think you made the right choice. <laughs> yeah, I would have saved them. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. 
it cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com Welcome back to Chef's Story. I'm here with Douglas Keene. And Douglas, talk to me a little bit about Shibumi. Shibumi, yeah. Um, I spent so much time in Japan, and, and the first time I was there, um, I just realized how everything – they try to achieve perfection at every level that they do things. And they also – you go to a sushi restaurant there and it's just sushi. It's not like where you go to a sushi restaurant here where there's everything. It's, it's, they perfect a craft. And so I would just kind of study the culture and the people. And I came upon this word one time and it was shibumi. It was refined simplicity, simple elegance, unobtrusive beauty, and quiet perfection. That's a long definition for a short word. Yeah, it is. It's more of a philosophy or, or a path, you know? And so I, um, I used to love the, Adrenaline, like in a kitchen like Lespinos or Four Seasons or Jardinera, it was like there was all this testosterone to move and to push and energy. And I went over to Japan and I realized that the food was just as good, if not better. And these kitchens were silent. And people, there was mise en place done. Like most things were done perfectly ahead of time. And then the things that were finished were like a sauce was finished or the fish was seared or garnishes were cut. And it was just, there was this peace. And I, I, I really liked that. And so I tried to bring that back to Cyrus after the first time and went from this really busy, busy kitchen to kind of like slowing it down just a little bit and thinking more about having mise en place, having everything in place, but also thinking through that how can you like make it perfect um, and refine it. And um, so that, that's really what I've tried to do. And I, I don't by any means claim that I'm there with Shibumi, but it's, it's kind of what I try to do with everything. Is it a, a word that's often used in the context of culinary there? I don't think at all. No, so no. It's, it's more of a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you've adopted it to, to the way you cook. and the way I try to cook. And the way yeah. you think about, does it influence the way you think about menu items? Menu items, design, uh, everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the organization of the kitchen, for sure. And how I manage. Because you, 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 it's, I have to remember, now it's been a few years which I've kind of changed my approach. Or, and um, you have to realize people coming into you to work under you, they, this is new to them. So you kind of have to, you kind of have to take them through and say, no, we don't have to do it this way. You don't have to slam the door. You know, you, ha- you, t- you take them through slowly about how you can be kind of methodical. It doesn't have to be. Sometimes people don't think. And there's people at Cyrus towards the end that didn't think it was a hard kitchen. I was like, great. I was like, I'm actually okay with that. I said, look at our food. You know, do you see the end product? You know, you don't have to be stressed to put out good product. So the kitchen is a peaceful environment. Uh, I hope at times. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what we strive it's for. Still a kitchen after all, right? It's still a kitchen, and at times you need to uh, you need to pull everyone into focus, you know. But yeah, it, it shouldn't have to be rah 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 all the time. So I understand that you uh, had a fellowship at the Japanese Culinary Academy, which I also understand only four chefs from around the world do that. Is that each year? Yeah, they 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 would grab four people each year and bring them over, and uh, usually they focused on like an area. Like one time they did America, and I think um, uh, it was Kinch and Chang and couple other people went and then the next year they were doing um i think south america or brazil maybe and someone bowed out and so um they asked david kinch who would like to go and he said oh i know doug would so they called me and i went and it was just incredible i I love i mean i loved everything about japan already but these guys they took us into kyoto 
there was there was about ten to fifteen chefs in the in that kind of ran the program, and I found out afterwards or during it that the reason I was I couldn't figure out why they would do this because so, they spent like twenty days with us or fifteen days with us. We worked in their kitchens during the day. We went shopping during the afternoon, and then they took us out to dinner at night. And we and then we did tea ceremonies. And but they were with us almost the whole time. You know, most of them, or for certain aspects of it. And I, I mean, I couldn't realize one how they afford to do this because it wasn't cheap. And we were staying in a hotel the whole time, and they were taking us out to dinners. Um, but why? What did they get out of it? You know, and they are so steeped in tradition there that. They want to expose the younger chefs to people from around the world so they kind of get fresh ideas as well. So it was really great for us to work with some of these younger guys, too, and, and talk with them about ideas. And, I mean, I remember we had to, like, create a dish towards it. it was kind of, they didn't really ask that much of us, but we came up with a dish from our studies, and I like to use white soy sauce. And I remember asking one of the older guys, one of the older chefs, says, can I get white soy? And, uh, no, 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 no. I'm like, okay. And couple minutes later talking to one of the younger chefs and uh i said yeah i wanted to use white soy with this because i like it to be kind of clear like lighter and uh, but i guess you guys don't use it and he says we use it <laughs> he goes the old guys don't use it they don't like it but we use it so there's a lot of that like the the, the it's a traditional culture but um it, it's it's just amazing and it was it was one of the coolest things i've been able to do yeah, it's great to be able to learn from the old timers who do everything perfect, the, the traditionally perfect way, and yeah. then see some new interpretations of that, and be able to do that yourself. I think yeah, that's great. It was really eye opening. It was. I was. I was one of the luckier things I've ever been able to do. I mean, incidentally, you've mentioned Andre Soltner and Jacques Pepin, two of our deans, who yeah. are you know classic and rooted in the classics and doing everything just so, and have done it just so for so long. You also mentioned David Kinch, who's one of our newer deans, who I think is. Um, you know, like you really learned about that tradition and then taking it in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, watching someone like Jacques Pepin work is just beautiful. I mean, it, it was so effortless to see him do anything. You know, you can throw a pan in that guy's hand at any point in time of the day, and he, there's no stress, there's no anything. And so, it, it to be that comfortable, I think you know, we're talking about a thousand roast chickens. It's it's that that I think is what it takes to get that good. You know, maybe Jacques. Uh performance in the kitchen is is kind of a shibubi, shibumi in itself right kind absolutely of and yeah watch him bone a quail uh, yeah. it's, it's, he's a mechanic oh he's an artist with it it's just impressive yeah. yeah so japan has really influenced your cooking yeah the flavors you know i i so i was trained kind of french i guess most of us were trained french because that was really all that there was at, at one point um and i think when you're younger you also cook Fat is really great. Like, more the better when you're younger because one, you can actually digest it. It's like it doesn't hurt you. But two, there's just that. Oh my god, that's a butter sauce. That's incredible. That creme brulee. Oh my god, I've never had anything like this. But I think as I've grown, um, and I've realized that I don't like people leaving the dining room stuffed. I like them to leave actually satiated, but like happy and comfortable. Like they. There's no uncomfortable. They're not full at all. Not full. They're full, but they're not overfull. I should say. Right. They're and they're not hungry. Yeah. They're they're happy with what they had, but they don't feel. Yeah. Overfull. I I wish there was more of that because, I mean, the part of the problem is that my wife never finishes every anything, and so I finish it. But <laughs> but I do even it's if I'm only truffle season. Yeah, exactly. If I'm even if I'm only eating my own and I eat quite a, a lot, I feel like I'm often leaving a tasting menu feeling overly full. Yeah, and so and I used to do that at Cyrus. I, I would and people would 
not complain about it, but you would hear, oh, wow, I'm really stuffed. And I thought that for a while was a good thing. And then so I started to look at the – I started to eat the omakase meals in Japan, at the, um, in Kyoto especially. And I would leave after like 20 courses and I would feel amazing. I, you know, I think I think the origin of the word restaurant is to restore people. You know, I think that's where it came from. Okay. People could stop and restore themselves. But many times you're, you, you don't feel that way when you leave. In Japan, I felt that way. And so I started to study what they do. And I realized that carbohydrates are placed very strategically in the meal. And they don't cook. There's very few carbs throughout the meal. So instead of starting a meal with a big we, – we had a bread basket with like 10 breads at Cyrus. And they were all miniature and they were all perfect. And they would be baked twice a night so they'd come out crunchy, hot, and perfect. Um, it was hard not to eat four of those things. But by then you're stuffed. And, and then you get into you know some other foie gras terrine with some brioche to it or you know, the pasta course or anything. Those carbs – fill people up and so to cook with less carbs and to satiate through umami versus fat is really where I went with my food and and I think where I kind of broke from tradition with Japanese styles I kind of use aggressive acid because I think that also brings you back it makes you want to have a little bit more and also it, it 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 perks you up for the next course as well I think like wow I want more of that but it's gone and I, Japan they're, they're a little less aggressive with the acid than I am okay so does that mean that you're you're cooking in a similar type of style, but with more Western ingredients and techniques. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of cool about cooking in in the states is there aren't really many rules, you know. Whereas if you go to Japan, and I think if I did my food in Japan, I think they'd be like, "Who is this guy?" Like, this isn't Japanese food, you know. Right. Like, even though over here people say, "Oh, he cooks very Japanese," it's you know, I've had Japanese chefs say, "Wow, it's not Japanese. It's it's interesting." Um, but yes, yeah, because I don't have I don't have to follow any rules, you know, and I really let the ingredient kind of take me, and then take the the, the the umami versus acid to try to bring it all into balance. Okay, so tell me a little bit about Two Birds One Stone. Yeah, our newest baby. Yeah, well, uh, congratulations, you know, welcome to the scene, right? Thank you. Yeah, I had I had a few I had a few years off, so uh, it's, I guess it's time to work nights again. It um, it's great. It's um, it, Two Birds One Stone is a California inspired yakitori. So. I partnered with Chef Sang Yoon uh, from Father's Office and Look Sean. We became really good friends while taping Top Chef Masters. We kind of competed against each other, but also kind of you know fell in respect for each other. Just his food was tight. I, I, we 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 thought a lot about food, a lot about acid, a lot about how we like to to do things, and um, we started talking. So at some point, it might be fun to do something. So this opportunity, Barbara Banky from Jackson Family said, um, we have this spot over in St. Helena. Um, we're going to do a huge renovation to it. Do you have any interest? in it and I looked at the building and it was kind of beat up but it was gorgeous it was this old Napa field stone it's I think it's from 1886 it's one of the most beautiful buildings around you could see the bones of it and so um, I was like wow this would be a pretty cool place to do something in as long as I can do something unique and I told her that saying and I wanted to do something Japanese inspired but California rooted and yakitori is obviously just grilled chicken but we said we're going to kind of blow that out a little bit and just we're going to we're going to stay traditional to the live fire aspect and kind of do the binchotan charcoals but we want to put our spin on it so instead of just getting a skewer of chicken thigh with like a little salt and a squeeze of lime we're going to take the chicken thigh we're going to brine it we're going to cook it perfectly maybe even sous vide it and then finish it on the charcoal we're going to take the skin out and add a component of texture to it by crumbling it and making like a, a, a chicken skin ebby almost where there's seasonings and cracklings in it. And then we're going to add a sauce and some vegetables. Um, so it's almost like a composed dish. It's, it's, it's taken a little bit further. So again, rooted in tradition, but 
kind of blown all the shreds. And so we just opened uh, about a week ago. That's amazing. Yeah, it's great too. It's we're having a lot of fun with it. It's fun to collaborate. It really is. I mean, it's at, at, at a certain level you're always teaching or it's always on your shoulders. It's really fun to kind of work with someone and learn from them as well because he has a whole different style as well that, you know, he, he, he's a very creative guy. And I, um, he, I think I balance him in the fact that I'm like, all right, let's make sure this is right before we put it on the menu or he's, he's very excited just to do things. And nine times out of ten, they're awesome right from the beginning. But I'm like, all right, let's make sure we can do this. Let's make sure the prep guys can handle this. You know, I'm much more practical than that. Right. So it's yakitori primarily. Yep. Do you have other things to round out the menu, or are you really sticking to this this true item as as the main focus? Um, we're stick. No, uh, we have a lot of other things on the item. Um, it's basically a poultry driven restaurant. Yep. So I would say seventy five percent of the dishes are poultry based, and there's amazing chickens and ducks and and quail and duck eggs up there. And so there's a lot of great poultry in Northern California. So we said let's let's be the main focus. But then. We also fell in love with, um, there's a, uh, a farmer, Tucker Taylor, who uh, Jackson family hired him a few years ago. He was the gardener at French Laundry, and then he, they brought him over to do their gardens. And this guy's produce is, it, it is pure art. Um, it is, it, he's on Instagram, and you can look at his stuff. It's just gorgeous to look at. But when you taste it, you, 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 you taste a radish like you've never tasted a radish before or a baby carrot. And it's, you know. Sang and I did an event there. We did a tomato festival, and um, we were using all. We were, it was like a mini competition, and w- his produce was what we were getting to use mostly. And Sang's like, "You mean we would get to use this stuff if we open this restaurant? Uh, yeah, we can have them grow almost exclusively for us." And wow. so it was really a big inspiration. So you'll see a ton of vegetables on the menu, um, which also fits in the California. You know, so it's not as traditional as, as typical yakitori. I'm certainly envious of where you live. The the produce it's is, is amazing. I don't get out there that much, but when I do, I, I take note because it, it really is spectacular. It, it's it's an amazing place to cook. I mean, you know, Manhattan's a special place because of the energy and, and the people. And But when you get out west, and uh, the fish here is pretty amazing in New York as well. But when you get out west, there's just nothing like the produce. When I first moved out there, I was work, and when I was working for Tracy, we were writing a special together one day. And... Uh, she said, uh, let's do black-eyed peas. I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, that sounds great. And so <laughs> you know where this is going. I, uh, I ran upstairs to the storeroom. I'm hanging out, hanging out, looking, looking, looking. I run down like 15 minutes later. I'm like, chef, there's no black-eyed peas. She's like, no, they're in the walk-in. They're yeah. fresh. You're looking for them in dry storage. I swear to God, I didn't even, the concept of the fact that they were fresh at some point hadn't even hit my mind. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's a season for everything. Yeah. Even dried peas have a season at first. And so it was, it was kind of eye-opening, actually. But, yeah, I think California is pretty amazing for that. And for our listeners who have not had the pleasure of eating fresh beans that are typically dried and on your supermarket shelf, it's night and day. It's a complete. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Fresh lima beans, not out of a freezer bag. And, exactly. And fresh cocoa beans I had in France. They're a white bean. I'm not even sure what we would call them here. Yeah, I think they call them cocoa so beans. Still, yeah. still one of the best things I've, I've ever eaten. Yeah. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Chef Story. I'm here with Douglas Keene, and we're talking about uh, Two Birds, One Stone, which just opened in uh, St. Helena, Helena, 
California. Yep. You got it. Um, I'm impressed. You must be a great manager to be able to be here less than a week after your new restaurant has opened. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I don't know if I'm a great manager, but I've got a great team. All right. I've got good. a lot of good support. Good. So tell me a little bit about Cyrus. Cyrus, um, as most of us know, is a two Michelin star restaurant for many years in a row. Yep. Um, was. Certainly one of my favorite alumni uh, by the name of Andrew Burnham used to work for you at Cyrus. Andrew did, yeah. I just got a text from him yesterday. Yeah, he's working with uh, David Kench and Manresa now. Yeah, he is. He's doing great. So tell me about Cyrus. I know that um, you're in a, an iteration phase for the next next round of Cyrus. Yeah, yeah. So you know, Cyrus was my baby. It was my um, dream of all dreams to open that restaurant. And uh, we did, and we did a great job at it. We had an amazing team. Um, and we had a great eight-year run, and then it um, it came time that we had an issue with the landlord, and it was it was uh, it was time. Sometimes divorce is better, you know. It's just it's sometimes divorce is actually a good thing, and it, we realized that he wanted different things from uh, a food restaurant there, and we didn't want to do certain things for a hotel, and we just said goodbye, and uh, it was it was it was great. It was liberating, actually. Okay. Must yeah. have been a tough decision, though. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't. You know, when you get in a situation like that, it's overbearing. It's. Um, it wasn't a pleasant situation, and so it's almost night and day that you're thinking about and dealing with it. And so to have it over is just. And, and it just. And one door closes, so many more doors open, and in so many ways, this, it was one of the best things I've done. And it was also we went out on such a high. I mean, sure. w- w- there wasn't anything we couldn't achieve there, and we. The only thing I really regret was. Uh, at the end of Cyrus, I had um, a kitchen team that was probably my favorite because of the way they worked together. And I don't even know if they were the best cooks that I'd had there. They probably weren't. But the, the sum is greater than the parts. And these guys worked together and supported each other. And you know, if one station went down, everyone was over to help. It was inside. So I missed that team. But besides that, it was the time. It was the perfect time to close. Okay. So you've been operating Healdsburg Bar and Grill, which is yep. very successful. Yep. You've just opened Two Birds, One Stone, but you also have plans for a next version of Cyrus. Yeah, yeah. We took over the bar and grill about um, six years ago, and it's 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 like the best location in wine country. It's right on the uh, square, and it's a, it, we have a great team there. It's a burger joint, and it's, it is what it is, and everyone loves it for that. It's, it's, it's not going to change, and it, has, it fits a great purpose, and we have a team there that really takes care of it for us. Um, but Cyrus... Um, yeah, we have we have grand plans for Cyrus. Uh, we've uh, we think we've got everything nailed down. We have found the perfect piece of land. We've been looking for. We want to create a real wine country restaurant. We want to create something that is literally in the vines, kind of like you see in Europe and in Australia and in other wine countries. In California, it's really hard because of zoning. Um, they don't like to take ag zoning and put commercial things into it unless it's. Co- completely ag-related. Um, y- there's a very strong argument to make that restaurants are ag-related, but wineries, it's more directly related to the crop. Okay. Um, and, and Two Birds, One Stone is in a winery, correct? It, it is in a winery. It's in Fremark Abbey Winery yeah. in St. Helena in Napa Valley, it's, but it is, it's on the highway on Highway 29, so it's actually commercially zoned. There is a vineyard behind it, but Napa Napa has that tight corridor, so there's actually a lot of right on the highway, but we're not actually in the vines. Um, okay. so, what, so what our vision was is um, to literally create a, a restaurant that was floating above the vines. And so we were searching for a while, and I think we found the perfect spot. We found about 13 acres of land, and instead of taking 
ag land, turning it commercial. We're going to take commercial land and add some ag back to it. So we're going to plant 10 acres of grapes. Even better, right? Yeah, and we're going to create a building that um, we're actually creating a journey. It's more of a journey than it is a restaurant. So you're going to enter through the grapes, and then you're going to go into the first room, which we're going to call Bubbles. And it's almost like you go into someone's home, and you have champagne and small bites to start the dinner party. And there's going to be 12 people at a time, 12 guests at a time. Not necessarily all to, like one party, but 12 people. And they'll stay in the bubbles room, which will overlook the entire uh, valley. And it'll be a glassed-in room and you know 25-foot ceilings and looking out, soaring above the grapes. And you'll have um, the canapes. We used to do sweet, sour, salt, bitter, umami canapes at the start Cyrus. So we're going to do that again and then kind of do stuff that pairs well with bubbles. And then we're going to move you into the second part of the journey, um, which is going to be a chef's table. And um, it's going to be a rammed earth cylinder that kind of opens to the sky. And in that is going to be two chefs that will actually kind of um, commune with you. You'll sit basically at, for lack of a better description, like a sushi table. And we're going to do... um, we're going to do a raw, a raw version of raw fish and shellfish and vegetables. Not 100% raw, but very focused on raw of just literally pulling things out of tanks in the back or pulling things out of the gardens that we have and prepared right in front of you for about four or five courses or six courses. Wow. And so you have some interaction as well. Um, and then after that, you're going to the dining room to kind of um, – and that dining room is going to be um, – a series of tables that are all cantilevered off of the vines, so 10 feet above the vines, so you're literally floating in glass, and everyone will have a table on on the window, so that everyone there's not a bad table in the house. And and so you'll go into that part of the, the um, dinner and do kind of the more traditional, not, not traditional, but more of a plated courses and kind of finish the meal. I would almost call it the red wine portion of the meal. Okay. Um, and at the same time, 12 more people will start, so we'll do yep. 12 people at 6, 12 people at 7, 12 people at 8. So 36 people. And at some point, uh, there's a full dining room. Not crazy busy, but you get a little bit of energy because you've been traveling with 12 people. But then you break off into your own party. Um, and then after dessert served, um, we're going to um, – well, there's also all these gorgeous terrariums throughout the building, these two-story terrariums of um, landscaped inside. So it's almost like an indoor-outdoor experience, um, like – 20 feet terrariums where you so it's soft it's it's very soft when you're in there even though there's a lot of glass and stone after um dinner you're going to go into a dessert room and i I did this because um i saw how much fun people had with the candy cart at cyrus what we would wheel out at the end and it's very traditional kind of miniard cart and then we would also drop little mini donuts on the table with a check and i just watched people's eyes kind of get excited for all that stuff so as you're taking this journey, I wanted to bring you back to the start of the journey with the sweet, sour, salt, bitter umami. And instead of having like 30 different candies that we did, I'm going to do five chocolates. And they're going to appear out of walls of flowing chocolate. So the entire room, you're going to walk into the room, almost like you walked into Willy Wonka's room where the wall kind of disappeared. And on your left and your right is going to be flowing walls of chocolate. And the smell is just kind of intoxicate you. And then slowly the water, will, the, the chocolate will stop flowing. And the boxes will come out, and you'll see a sweet canapé chocolate at the end, and then sour, bit salty, bitter umami kind of will take you through. And then you'll be able to kind of sit in that room for a little while, kind of take it in. We'll offer you like an adult hot chocolate coming out of a you know, separate fountain, and then sneak out into the garden before you leave. Wow. I guess you've thought about it a little bit. Oh, yeah. We've had a couple of years to kind of work on this. We have an amazing architect we're working with, too. So please uh, 
refresh my memory of the definition of shibumi? Refined simplicity, simple elegance, unobtrusive beauty, and quiet perfection. I think that's what you just described. Trying to, in, yeah. In it's all that's all in mind when we design it and when we do the menu, and it's all yeah. It's it, it's it's exactly what we're trying to do. And when can we expect this to open? <sighs> that's a great question. Um, it'll be a 18 month build, so it, it, we could technically break ground at any point. We just gotta kind of sign some things and. Uh, finalize everything so it's like there's emails happening as we're talking hopefully uh, fi- finalizing it well, I wish you the best of luck with that thank and, you uh, do think radio hosts should absolutely make their way onto the friends and family absolutely uh, you got list. it you're invited sounds fantastic uh, so we haven't talked about Top Chef Masters no I mean, this is a big deal. This is, you know, it's not just Top Chef, which is a big deal. It's Top <laughs> Chef Masters, and you weren't just on it. You won. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. That's a, a pretty amazing experience. Uh, you know, it was an amazing experience. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't consider it the most important thing I've done, um, but it was fun, and I met Sang doing that. Um, it was uh, it was pretty challenging um, because the first part of it, I, I I thought I was ready for it, and then... The brilliance of these shows, I think, is that they take the control. They take control freaks, chefs, and people are always in charge. And, and if you're a great chef, you everything is planned out very well. So they take you and they take complete power away from you, and they don't tell you anything that's happening. So it creates kind of this this recipe for some drama, which is obviously what they're looking for. But I wasn't quite ready for that, and I also wasn't ready to like be judged by people from Days of Our Lives, you know that didn't know anything about food and so i had i had a really hard time the first like seven days where i almost left because one i couldn't check my ego i was just i was just like what am i doing here and then i remember talking to my wife Uh, i called her i'm like i'm I'm leaving tomorrow i'm so done with this some idiot had talked about my curry some some radio guy um from la and i was like are you kidding me like hopefully he's not listening he his name is jason (laughs) saying knows him actually uh i I ripped him pretty hard actually the dish was genius even the chefs were like oh my god and this guy's like that's not a curry i'm like well that wasn't the competition we're supposed to reinvent curry but uh i had to get over myself right then and there and so my wife's like just stay another day you're doing this for the dogs she's like shut up and deal with it and so i kind of just got checked myself that night and i'm like all right you know what you're right who cares Let's have fun for this. Let's win some money for the dogs. And it's not about you. You're just having fun. And so I went back, and I just relaxed, and I started having fun with it. And, I mean, I won at the end, but, you know, it wasn't really. So what kind of, how's the pressure in that different than the pressure of running a two-star Michelin restaurant? Um, the pressure is what you make it there because the time limits are real. You know, you're cooking for a half hour, knife's up, or whatever they say. That's actually real. But... <clears throat> It's it's people aren't paying for the meal. You know, I feel a really strong obligation to people to pay two hundred bucks or more for a meal. I feel like you owe them something pretty pretty impressive and, and pretty perfect. Um, there, it's just you know, it's like, can you put together a burger in fifteen minutes, or you can't. Right. You can or you can't. It's like, all right, as long as you kind of gut check yourself and you're not embarrassed to put up a bad product, because who does that? No one really does those types of things. So if you get lucky and pull it off, then you get lucky. So um, there was pressure towards the end just because I, I, I was so close to the money for the charity that I was like, I really do want to win this. It would make a huge difference. We were a brand new charity. Um, we had like four volunteers at the time and no operating budget, and, and it was such a cause that I believed in that – um, I wanted to, so when I was able to do that, it, it was you know there was a little pressure at the end, but it was great. And did you have to prepare specifically for the competition? Not at all. I had no idea. I, I, 
I'd never even watched the show. Right. You just walk in. You know how to cook. You're, you've been doing it for years. You, you're going yep. to wing it. And I see thought I'd be gone within a week or two. Okay. I really did. I had no, I had no intention of winning because I, don't, I really don't cook like that. Like, that's why Sang probably did so well at it because he can cook off the cuff. Like He just thinks and goes. And I am so much more planned out. And so I was like, well, this is going to be a struggle, but whatever. I have the time now. You, know, they, you needed like three weeks to commit to it. I'd never had that time before Cyrus closed, so now I did. I'm like, all right, you know, I'll do it. You have to be very organized in the moment, but you can't be organized ahead of time, right? Exactly. And, and I think that was one of my strengths is every time they would give us a challenge, I would everyone would run to go grab whatever they're supposed to grab, and I would just park myself at my station, set up my knife, set up my spoons, my water, and I'd think about it. And then I'd walk back to see what was left. I was like, oh, okay, I'm cooking eggs. That's the only thing that's left. And it was like, okay, great. You know, the, so it was this piece about it that I got. So you weren't the one running to go grab the, the ingredients. I, I can't run anymore. I've got a bum leg, so it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so you talked about winning money for a charity. This is the Green Dog Rescue Project. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm a dog lover. I'm fascinated by this. I uh, did a little bit of reading about it. And uh, first of all, congratulations. I think it's an awesome thing to do. Thank you. Um, and I applaud you for it. Uh, tell me more about it. Yeah, it's one of the better things I've done in my life. Um, it is based uh, – so I, I, I was working uh, – I decided – we have a five-acre plot of land, and my, and my wife and I do, in Alexander Valley. And we said we're going to have a dog rescue at some point. And so I was thinking, and I'm like, I should probably learn more about dogs. I, I love them, but, like, how they behave and things. So I decided to get certified as a dog trainer. Um, so I took these night classes and did it. And, um, and part of that was to go work at shelters. So I was volunteering at the local shelter, and it was amazing how frustrating it was to watch these dogs that we were working with get put down after you'd make some progress with them. And it just drove me crazy, but I couldn't figure it out. And then I started hearing about this woman at this business called King's Castle, which was just down the street you know, in the next town. And about 100 dogs running around in a pack, and she's doing rehab and boarding, and, and she helps shelters. So I went down to take a look, and I had actually ha- asked her help with one of the dogs that they were getting ready to put down. And I just, I, I'd fallen in love with this guy, Jake, and I just, I, I couldn't let him go. I just, you know, I was trying to do anything to save him. And uh, she's like, I'll take him, and I'll take him for a weekend. You know, see, I'll tell you what I think. She goes, I'm not promising anything. And what happens is they, t- so the shelters were built to, um, protect humans from animals that's the reason that they were and to cage them but as we learn more about animals they're actually pack creatures and they're social so they need to be around so you take a dog a stray dog or a bad dog or a hurt dog you throw it into a a prison basically put it in isolation it's going to deteriorate and there's no it's, it's not bad that we had this system we had to do it but now that we learn so much more about it you walk into a pack of animals that's being run right with with one alpha person or two alpha people managing it there's a sense of peace, and these dogs want to belong to the pack, and they just tend to behave. So 99% of the dogs that we would bring down there with issues would literally walk into the pack, kind of cowering because they didn't know what to do, and then within like an hour or two, they were in there playing, and all of their problems were fixed. And the dogs really don't get sick that much, unlike they do in the kennel. And it's just it just makes so much sense when you see it and when you study it that I truly believed in it. So I talked to Colleen. Um, 
she actually spoke with me. She said, I've always wanted to start a, a nonprofit. And I, I do a lot of pro bono stuff because I love to be able to raise money for it and do it the right way. And I said, all right, I'm in. Uh, and I was just sick of seeing dogs. You know, They have these no-kill shelters, which is a great concept because it's an improvement. But no-kill is kind of a misnomer because it means that you euthanize less than 10% of the animals. Okay. So you drop your a, a dog off at a no-kill shelter – if their time's up, their time's up, you know, or if they have any sort of behavioral problems, they're not going to get a second chance. This, we throw it in the pack, and it's a more efficient, more economical, and it's more humane because these dogs get to socialize. And so to date, um, so the TV show, you know, we had like four volunteers. We had about ten dogs that we were just trying to work with, and then uh, the TV show happened. We won, I think I won 120 grand for them, but... I think they have over 100 volunteers now. They've saved 500 dogs all off of euthanasia lists. They go into other shelters and grab them. And it's just a great model, and I truly believe in it. And now I'm more of a, you know, I don't really get to play with the dogs as much because I'm busier, but um, I raise money for it. I try to get down there. There's a couple dogs I'm still attached to. Uh, Jada and Jakey are still there, so I go and see them. Um, but that's fantastic. That's, that's a great, that's it's a really great awesome. thing. Yeah, thanks. So we picked up Lucy 14 and a half years ago from the North Country Animal League in Morrisville, Vermont. She, she had been picked up as a stray recently and they they thought she was somewhere between two and four years old so you can do the math yeah she's a big dog she was she she was about 75 pounds at her you know full weight uh, she hasn't been able to hear in years, but I'll see if I can explain your project to her. I think she'll appreciate it. <laughs> At this point, she probably doesn't want to go into a pack. Yeah, no, she, does, she, she shouldn't have to. Yeah, she, she's the leader of the pack in our <laughs> yeah, household, absolutely. that's for sure. Uh, but that's really rewarding. I think that you know chefs are always so busy that you don't have time often to to give back and, and do as much as you'd like to. So you're making time, and um, and I really appreciate that. I think. I it's think. Uh, thanks. I think. Um, like this celebrity chef thing is kind of interesting to me. It's, it's, it's dinner <laughs> and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. So I, I kind of laugh at it from, from afar. But if I, if I can use it to leverage for stuff like that, then I, then, then I'm, I'm willing to exploit it a little bit. And so I've been able to do that with the green dog rescue project. Absolutely. Leverage celebrity to have a voice that people yeah. are listening to, right? Yeah. If, and for people that are animals that don't have a voice. That's great. And finally, I want to talk about your app. You're you're teaching people to cook through uh, through the iTunes store, the, you know, the I'm store, app to. store. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, keen on ingredients. I um, came up with it almost. It's almost like a business card where it's like just get to know me. But I, I wanted people to look at it and say. I feel like based off of ingredients, you know, so I feel like cooking scallops today. What can I do? So we have a couple of recipes on there for that. I, and I, I added dashi because I wanted to show seaweed and so it's to, to give a basis for kind of the food that I like to do. But there's also simple pickling recipes. And it's, it's basically all based off of like eight ingredients. And you can look and say, all right, corn's in season today or this, this week or this month. You can go and say, all right, there's two or three recipes with corn. What can I do with it? And, and actually some great photography that goes step by step by step to show you what it should look like as well. It's a lot of fun to do it. And are you you're, you have a test kitchen, so you're kind of developing the app through that. And yeah, yeah. I uh, we have test kitchen in Healdsburg, still getting ready, doing R and D for Cyrus. We did a lot of R and D for Two Birds One Stone as well. Um, but I have a chef that's worked with me, Drew Glassell, for about 15 years now. So he and I do the test kitchen, and we come up with stuff. And as we see fit, we add it to the app, or we um, just it's just for research, really. Yeah, it sounds fun. I mean, you got a lot going on. I do. Yeah, well, it's, it's really good to meet you, and uh, you know, I thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And. Uh, 
Dorothy will be back next week. I want to thank the, the Chef's Story team as well. But I uh, wish you the best of luck on Two Birds, One Stone. And thank you. Can't wait to hear more about Cyrus opening in the next 18 to 36 months, shall we exactly, say? Exactly, yeah. We might have some news in the next couple of weeks. All right, we'll keep looking out for it. Uh, so thank you all for listening, and uh, that's it for Chef's Story today. Bye-bye. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions at any time at info at heritage radio network.org heritage radio network is a non-profit organization to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening Thank you.